0: The media is everything in, in this world we live in. I mean, the, the first media you can think of, obviously, is television, then, you know, printed media, then later on the digital media. But the reality is that today, if we create something interesting in a piece of packaging, you go to Walmart, you buy an interesting can that you didn't expect, you know, you limited edition inspired by the movie back to the future. Now, wow, you know, I was not planning to buy Pepsi today, but I see this, I love it. By the way, let me take a picture and share it. The moment you do that, that packaging is not packaging anymore. It becomes content and media, therefore. is It becomes a piece of communication. The same if you go to a fashion show or a stadium and you live an experience, you take a picture, and all of a sudden... That thing is not just an event or it's not just packaging, is a media for a message.
1: I just love that accent. It's so charming, but that is not why Mauro Porcini is on the show. Mauro is on the show today because he is a design icon. One of the, what is he, a Fortune 40 under 40, um, Fast Company's 50 Most Influential Designers, uh, not to mention a sidebar here: GQ Italia's 30 Best Dressed Men. He is a design icon, a legend, and he's the chief design officer for Pepsi. Talk about uh, innovating and employing creativity at scale. And you might be saying, "Well, what about you know Pepsi's sugar water?" The reality is, when you have the opportunity to impact as many lives that Mauro does, we have to pay attention. And he has a new book out, which is incredible. It is called the human side of innovation, the power of people in love with people. In this episode, we go deep. I, I challenge him with his question around, wait a minute, how can you stay so creative working for a Fortune 100 brand? Or similarly, how can you, when you are the chief design officer of a company that's that large, how do you stay connected to the creative process? This is true whether you're um you know, uh, managing a team of three or three or 30 or 3000 or an agency, whatever, any leader will will get a lot of benefit in listening to Mauro talk about leadership, not just creative leadership, two parts memoir, one part business, one part lessons for life. Today's show is going to wake you up and connect you to a whole universe of ways that you had not thought about how design about how the people you spend time with, and about what you, the messages that you receive in the world, how it manages you, how these things impact our lives. Again, I'm going to get out of the way. Yours truly, and Mauro Puccini. Mauro, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Well um new book lifelong career uh cool background you got a great little pup walking around there you're drinking ginger juice it looks like everything is well in the world um where are you coming from today and that's the first question so that we know where we can you know orient you in time and space for those who are listening uh and Tell us why uh, you are on the show. What What is it that you have built in your life that makes us want to have a conversation today?
0: Well, uh, I'm Italian. I live in New York City right now. I'm in my apartment in New York uh, looking at the skyline. And I'm 47. And 47 years ago and a few years later until you know, I was a teenager, I would have never thought that my life in the future would be in America. I was from a town uh, outside of Milan, one hour driving from Milan, uh, growing up in a family very humble. The four of us, my brother and my parents, were sleeping in one room in a very difficult neighborhood of the city of Varese. With parents, they never traveled. They never left Italy. Now they are in their early 80s and uh, they traveled twice in their life, once to come to the U.S. to meet me finally here in New York City. Another one to go to Medjugorje, you know, is a pilgrimage. They're very Catholic. Uh, but their parents, they gave me so much. Uh, they were practicing, even before talking about the, the idea of culture. That was their dream, knowledge and culture. So reading and listening to interesting people. And then the idea of being a good person, being a good human being. They were afraid of wealth and fame. They never talked about that. And when I started to have a little bit of money, you know, my first jobs, they started to pay uh, more than average. I remember my mom afraid that I could lose my way, that I could lose my values. This is the kind of family I came from. And you can imagine the giant gap there is between where I am today, you know, (laughs) in New York City, in this penthouse and where I come from. But I'm grateful to life because through many challenges and difficulties that I faced over the years, he gave me the awareness of being grateful every day for, for what I have today. And for me, on top of the nice things that, you know, surround me, uh, that are obviously important, but they're material, they're, at the end of the day, in the long run, are irrelevant. For mm-hmm. me, the most important thing that I have today is happiness. And and it's my baby that is is seven, almost seven months old, it's my dogs, it's my... My wife is my family and my friends uh they are the most most important thing that, that i achieved in life if you want you mm. know, having the synergy and the happiness with them it sounds so good to say in a podcast or writing a book or speak at the <laughs> conference but it's really really like this i really feel it deeply deeply
1: well i can feel it in uh just how you have expressed that that's a beautiful Picture that you've painted of growing up. I will now fill in a few details for those folks who are listening. And in, in that, Mauro Puccini is Pepsi's first ever chief design officer, and is responsible for more than 1,100 design and innovation awards, uh, including Fortune's 40 Under 40, GQ Italia's 30. I mean, the list is long. So your the humility with which you approach um, creativity. Uh, again, I'm, I'm very interested in talking a little bit about your new book. Um, but maybe you can talk a little bit about how this humility that you have, that you talked about in your early childhood and how that, um, how you layer that into your creative process.
0: Well, uh... Somehow, again, I go back to my parents. I always do, maybe because years ago, doing a little bit of analysis in a difficult moment of my life, I understood how you find so many answers in your childhood. So on on one side, that humility somehow comes from them. I I remember one episode in particular, and I was pretty young, and it it, it stayed impressed in my mind because it was a sort of shock. I was playing... in a a playground and there were my parents there and there was, I never know how to call it the monkey bars. The one Mm -hmm. where you hang and you go is like a ladder horizontal ladder. So here I have, I have, I am, I have these monkey bars in front of me and I want to go, but there is a kid that arrived before me and he goes. And so he goes from one side of the monkey bar to the other. He finish, he goes out and he's there. So I go next, I go all the way to the other side, and then I come back without you know, just turning while I'm still hanging, and I come back. And I did it just because I had the energy, I wanted to do it, and it was fun for me. I I loved to do it, and I was trying to prove my limit, but to myself. So I get out of that, I start to walk away with my parents, and I see my mother pissed. She was angry, and she's like, I don't like that kind of behavior. I don't like what you just did you wanted to humiliate the little boy. I mean we were probably the same age, the other boy <laughs> right and and so the shock comes from the fact that I had zero intention to do that. So imagine how painful it is for anybody any age, but especially for a kid to be accused of something you didn't want to do. But I, but I'm grateful of having you know had that pain because it made me remember that episode that probably was one of many, many in which my parents were trying to educate me about the value of humbleness. Because in that case, it didn't happen. I didn't want to do it against the baby. But maybe there are other situations in which I was trying to show that I was, you know, smarter or or better or something. And so that idea that is not okay came from there. So that has been very important from the beginning. But then later on, life gave me so many more lessons and I realized the incredible value of humbleness. And so even when intuitively you are like, okay, I know I reach a lot of knowledge and I reach a title and a position and I have now experience. Reminding yourself that you will never know enough. There was always opportunity to learn more and to grow. Reminding yourself, they were dust in the universe that what we know is really essentially nothing compared to the amount of knowledge that is out there. You know, is humbleness driven by awareness, by the awareness that there is so much more to learn and to grow. And, and actually then when you study a little bit, you realize that many people before us already arrived to that conclusion. Socrates thousands of years ago used to say that the wise person is the one that knows of not knowing. And it's such, there is so much truth there. And the city, like New York, by the way, helps you even more in this. You know, if you, I come from a, the province where you do a little bit in life, and you're like, "Wow, now I'm the king of the town," and <laughs> show it to everybody. And then here you arrive in New York, and you're surrounded by thousands of people that did amazing things in life, in any kind of field, in finance, in television, in design, in in any field. So, you know, this is a city that pushes you to be humble because you meet so many interesting people and you always know that even if you have no clue who is the person in front of you, this person could be smarter than you, more beautiful than you, more rich than you, more anything than you. And so... By definition you step back you're like okay <laughs> let me be more humble it's even more convenient but i i you know i share a few stories with you but there are many reasons why humbleness is both an ethical value that we should have but it's also an amazing driver to push you to grow and learn more and understand that you don't know everything and actually you should have the confidence on letting people around you helping you surrounding you people with diverse thinking and more knowledge and 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 people that in a way or the other can add value, can help you fill in your gap, is the best thing you can do to, for yourself. Is the best gift you can be, give to yourself, to your team, to your company, and to society.
1: I do want to go. Thank you for that, first of all. I do want to also go into this idea that you know the collaboration, the collaborative spirit that has it, you know, it's it is a huge part of any creative endeavor, right? We, often there's one person whose name's on the album uh, or whatever, Taylor Swift. And yet there are so many people that come together to to make that. So I, I want to cover this idea of creativity, but I want to first, um, in pulling on that that sort of thread of team and it, what I shared in you know, on, the, on the backside of your intro, that you are the chief design officer at Pepsi. And I want to ask the question that, A lot of people I think who are listening are like, amazing. Wow, this, you know, this guy has achieved so much. And there are people who, through the lens of their own lives or maybe where their career is headed, that are that are like, wait a minute. So I am this creative person. And every time I get promoted in my job, I can actually I I feel some sort of a distance that I'm creating from the actual making of the product. I don't know, but I'm guessing that Mauro Porcini is not hitting sort of control, copy and paste in Illustrator around the next Pepsi can. And so as you, (laughs) as all of us become more, you know, uh, further along in our, in our personal journey and our professional and our career, there is this this competing idea that we have actually become, we we get further away from the process and the actual creativity. So help us understand how a, that's, you know, what, what you believe about that, if it's true or not true or, and, 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 you know, and b. in a corporate environment, how much room is there actually for all this creativity that you spent your, your whole life from being infused with your, your parents, you know, very, very early age to now, like how, how do you bring that, all that creativity to bear in a world where you're like working for a, you know, fortune 500 company?
0: Well, I mean, for sure, the more you grow within an organization, the more you start to put distance, the beauty of the distance you're putting is that you are Ideally also increasing the impact you can have with your ideas in society, even if you don't control every single step of the project. And probably if you're growing within an organization, an agency, a company, there is a high probability that instead of running just one project, you start to run five or 10 or 20 or 100 or 1000 projects. So again, if you're driven by the impact of ideas, even if you don't work on the details of those ideas, There is so much creativity in driving Mm -hmm. that. That's the first thing. The second though, is that if you study design, like in my case, and you're, you know, I was an industrial designer, and then I discovered very early on the world of brand design and graphic design and all these dimensions, I did a thesis on wearable technologies. My first agency was working in digital. So I'm in love with all these different things. And at the beginning, I was doing it. I was coding. I was designing in 3D. I was doing typography and graphic, you know, in the different jobs I had in the first few years. If you love that, you miss that, you know, in, in, in your journey. And so what I try to do, even though I don't, I'm not there in front of a software to design the details of that can or, or that product, I try to pick a few projects where I am really heavily involved. You know, not as a, CDO of a company, but more like eventually a manager. You know, maybe not a designer because again, I'm not there anymore uh, with the software. But I may sketch on a on a pad. I may uh, ask people to translate that idea in something, and then when uh, I see the first rendering, I start to modify it. I uh, and and so in some projects, I have that excitement that comes from being part of that end to end. There are specific solutions that came to market over the years, they were completely 100% my idea. But those are... And those gave me so much happiness and satisfaction. And obviously, I don't talk about this because at the end of the day, is the work of the team. And also because I have the privilege of bragging about tons of, thousands of ideas that were not mine. You know, but, right. but there is my name, I'm Taylor Swift in that case. And so I post <laughs> and, and it's the greatness of my team and their ideas. And, and that excites me as well, because a big chunk of my creativity goes also in finding these people, in inspiring them, in making sure that they're happy. And so that creativity you talk about, Uh, I try to focus it on a few projects where I'm involved, is the creativity that then goes on the big ideas that change an industry or the world, and is the creativity that goes into selecting the right people, surrounding yourself with them, and then I use the word happiness, making them happy, not in a light way. I want them happy and they spend so much time at work. If they're miserable at work, they're going to be miserable in their lives as well. So as leaders in this company, we have such a great responsibility. It's not just, you know, a nice to have. It's a responsibility to make sure that these people are happy is on us and obviously is on these people as well mm-hmm. uh, but but building awareness about the importance of happiness in the workplace is for sure a responsibility of these leaders and these companies we want people happy
1: mm. well let's go deeper there because that is a big thread in your book uh and the this is relevant for any leader of any organization specifically creatives as you talk about and the way that you talk about it in the book is with the the phrase unicorn right and unicorns are in you know in some circles unicorns are companies that are valued at more than a billion dollars for this focus however you're talking about the people that you get to work with and so whether these are people and this is again i'm speaking to anyone who's within a company and is and, and managing someone or as a as a solopreneur and you're managing the you know creative collaborators for example because that that is also very relevant talk to me about this the the idea of finding unicorns in other genius loving creative happy people
0: well this idea of the unicorns started many years ago was still in my previous company in 3m <clears throat> from the observation of what was happening in my life while I was trying to build a new design capability in a big corporation. Uh, Essentially, here I am, I I arrived in 3 M, and I read so many books about design and design innovation and uh, obviously, uh, you know, fresh of school, even if I had a few years of experience with my agency and with another company, but I was still fresh with those ideas of what you learn at school and I had the possibility to bring in also very famous designers and mostly big design agencies, big Mm -hmm. names of the, the design world. And... Everybody in books, conferences, design firms, they will come in and sell you tools and methodologies. Buy this book because it's going to teach you how to do design in the best possible way. Hire my firm because my firm has all these processes and these tools and is the best. And so, yes, I believed in that. And I started to build within 3M those kind of tools and ways of working and processes. And I started to run a series of projects with these, dozens of them, and then hundreds of them. And then you look back, I started to look back, and I realized that some were going very well and some others were not, were failing miserably. And then I was like, how is it possible? You know, I need to improve the tools or maybe change the agency or... And, and again, some were working and some were not. Uh, some project was succeeding, some were failing. And at a certain point, I realized the obvious. It was all about the people assigned to those projects. So I could go with a big, to a big design firm with hundreds of designers, and they will sell you their methodology, their tool, and their successes with other companies. But at the end of the day, it all depended on who was the person assigned to my projects. That person, those few person in the team, the right one were really helping us. The wrong one were not. The same in my own team, in the design team in Triumph, in R&D, in marketing. I had the right people, great. The wrong people, projects were going in the wrong direction. So there's a certain point I was like, wow, everybody talks about everything else, but they don't talk about what are the key characteristics that make the difference you know, in these projects how these people think, how they observe reality, do they have the courage to push things against any kind of challenge and roadblock? They have the right resilience. They have the curiosity to grow and learn. They have the ability to go all the way to market, understand uh, end users, understand uh, the variables of the business, and so on and so forth. So I decided to put these characteristics in a list many years ago in 3M. I gave it to my recruiters and the HR team, and I told them, this is the filter to find the people are going to work with us. And then this list became a paper for the design management Institute review on purpose. I wanted these traits to be public as much as possible uh, so that people interested to join our teams could read about them. And then I used them in the past 12, 13 years to filter the people I was working with to become a compass for myself, you know, to grow myself. And also uh, the people that surround me outside of the design team to understand who are the right partners, what they call the co-conspirators. Some of these traits are more obvious than others. For instance, the ability to think big, to dream, and we are all born with that kind of ability as children, we are born with that ability to fantasize, to dream. And then at a certain point, the world tells us that dreaming is childish. It's not okay that adults don't dream. And yet we, we go to college and we get out of school and we still dream and we go to these companies and we try to change the world or we try to do it through our agencies, our startups. But then society pushes back. You know, they try to normalize. They don't want us to dream too much. Society loves the norm. Society doesn't want people to dream too much because you don't control anymore. People, if they start to go in all kind of directions, you want army of people that comply, that you know behaves, you know, on the basis of specific norms and standards. Society loves the standards, the same mold. And yet, there are some people that keep dreaming. They go to these companies, then they meet supervisors, CEOs, and business leaders that tell them, "How arrogant are you to think that you can change this company, you can change this brand, you can change this industry?" And and, and, and then at a certain point, we start to believe them. Yes, maybe I'm arrogant. I can't. They're right. So dream, 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 dream. But that's not enough. You need to be able to dream and then to learn things, to make things happen, to compromise, to take trade-offs. Trade-offs and compromises are okay in, you know, in the journey to achieve your dream. And so uh, people that understand how to combine the two dimensions, they're not easy to find. In fact, if you look in many industries, Uh, For instance, the world of fashion, often you have the creative dreamer and the pragmatic entrepreneurs that make things happen. You see this couple so many times. So it could happen in one person. It could happen by blending people in the right way in a team. But again, these are more obvious kind of characteristics. There are others that are less obvious. The power of curiosity, the power of kindness, the power of optimism, respect, resilience, and a variety of different characteristics, some of them like kindness, you know, in the business world, they actually told us so many times the kindness is, is weakness, that you shouldn't be kind. You should be a little bit tough. In, in reality, instead, in my journey, I found in these traits such a competitive advantage for our teams to really change the game. And I can talk more about this if you want, but the book, uh, you know, in the book there is a big focus on this kind of characteristics.
1: Yeah, I want to call our attention now to the book. It's called The Human Side of Innovation. And in, well, in reading the book, uh, I want to talk early on, you talk about this dreaming part uh, and you put that just a moment ago in the context of, you know, who are you to think that you can, you know, fill in the blank, change this company, this industry, this whatever. And I would, I was inspired by that in part because we do hear so much about, you know, uh, we're, there's there's this juxtaposition of you know th- think big but stay realistic, and um, you know stand out but fit in. And I'm hoping that you can um, help us understand these dichotomies and what you would coach some creator who's listening to the show or watching the show right now. What would you give to someone that's stuck in this paradox like how do I dream big yet not you know come across as arrogant or how do I you know stand out and not make all my teammates feel uncomfortable that this is a you know somehow about me instead of the work or we're we're caught in this paradox, and I'm wondering you know aside from assigning us to read the entire book which is beautiful by the way it's also incredibly well designed as one would imagine but give us some advice well
0: let's talk about this idea of standing out and fitting fitting in that can be applied to many different things is is yourself is your culture is what you're trying to push i think The secret is to find the right balance between the different dimensions. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, If you you think, for instance, about us as designers within a business world, what we need to do is to make sure that the business world understand and appreciate our diversity of thinking, creative thinking. They call us, they're hiring you in, in a company or as an agency because They want the diversity of thinking. But if the diversity of thinking is too extreme, they won't be able to understand you. They won't be able to leverage you. And so you need to understand how to build the right balance. And there are a variety of different things that you can do. For instance, I will push creativity to the extreme and use words like love in a boardroom. And 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 emotions and curiosity and all these things, also to describe products and projects and brands. But then in the same conversation, I will blend it with words that they understand, that are clear to them. And I will try to build a bridge. For instance, how you connect love and return on investment on a specific project or kindness and productivity uh, and shocking them because here they are, they expect just the creative guy and then you can talk business, you can talk market share and profit. And and, and so all of a sudden, they're like, wow, we're getting the creativity we want. It is complementary to what we know already as an organization, as a company, but this person is able to translate what he's talking about in something that makes sense for us. Too many times we are Japanese talking to Italians in Japanese and they don't understand us. And so finding a language that can, you know, as a Japanese learning a little bit of Italian, enough to, you know, mix the Japanese exotic cool words with words in Italian that make you, you know, people understand you. Is important. And then next day, you're in front of the Americans. You need to talk their language. And then the day after, you're in front of the Brazilians. And the Brazilians, the American and Japanese, are maybe the business leaders of different parts of the organization. Maybe is the marketing counterpart, finance, and then engineering, and then the digital team and IT. And you need to change all the time your language, but still delivering the integrity of your disruptive ideas. Another very simple technique that came to mind, you know, studying the world of semiotic already back at school and then falling in love with the world and always reminding the power of semiotic is the way we dress. I always told my team, obviously, they are free to do whatever they want. but something that worked for me over the years. When I am, uh, well, in the company in general, I try uh, to have an attire that somehow reminds the world of business. Maybe a jacket or, you know, you have something that is familiar to these business leaders. And then you have a touch of craziness. In my case, is the crazy shoes, you know, that I collect shoes and everything. It, that, that kind of uh, outfit change also on the basis of the situation. For instance, if I am in front of um, an executive committee and I'm there asking Hundreds of millions of dollars for an investment and with high risk, I'm gonna try to be more, you know, serious in the way I dress so that I implicitly create more confidence. And it's totally is literally this is branding, right? Or is design, whatever. But when I am at the World Business Forum in front of thousands of CEOs talking about creativity. I go wild. I go with loud jackets and, you know, because there the credibility comes from my position and the fact that I'm on the stage and I want to celebrate that creativity to the extreme, these people need to be inspired. So right there, my, I'm managing my language, the code, what in semiotic we would call the code of my communication to be meaning, to emphasize the creativity and inspiration that is part of the meaning in the specific context. These are two examples. I have many more, but you know, always trying to balance in a very conscious way. And by the way, this is design thinking in action. This is about empathy. This is about understanding the people you have in front of you and understanding how to excite them, but in the meantime, reassure them as well.
1: Yes. And two things of note, uh, GQ Italia's top 30 well-dressed men you're listening to him right now or watching him. So take a thing, I take a, a cue or two of fashion. I also want to retrace for those that didn't catch the word semiotics, right? This is the study of signs and symbols. So uh, understanding how and when to leverage that, you gave the example of standing on stage at the you know World Economic Forum and in front of a bunch of CEOs, you need to sort of you know, use yourself as a sign and symbol as fashion and identifying with creativity. I think there's so much wisdom in it. Is it, is it as simple as knowing your audience? Is it knowing the people that you're creating for in that moment? Is it as simple as that? Look,
0: going even beyond semiotic, understanding um, the key components of language and communication um, in I think it was in the 50s, um, Jacobson defined the key component of, a com- of the creation of meaning. And, and so essentially, I studied this at school. And again, it helped me so much in everything I did all my life. The first is the sender. You have somebody sending a the message. Then there is the message. You have the receiver, that is the audience. Then you have the code, the media, the context, and the noises. So every kind of communication is defined by this component. By the dynamic interaction of all these components, you create the meaning of the message. And so let's make a couple of examples. Right now, uh, you and I talking to the people listening to us, we are the sender. What we're saying is the message. The well, Obviously, you know, I ask you before the conversation, I ask you, can you tell me more about your audience so that I understand who I'm talking to so I can make sure that the message is relevant to them? And then there is the Media in this case, the media is literally the mic we're using, and then the device these people will use to listen to us. The code is both my voice, the English language, but also my accent, and if you're looking at the video, is my body language. It's part of code, and well, we'll talk more about this. And then the. Uh, Context is both the physical context of where you're listening to this conversation, but that's not that relevant in this case. But it's the cultural context mostly. So that what you and I are talking about right now, if you're American, you're going to receive the meaning in a certain way. If you're Japanese, you're going to receive the meaning in a different way. If you're a man or you're a woman, you're going to see things that eventually the other gender doesn't see, and so on and so forth. Each of us will see something else on the base of e- their personal cultural context and history and biases and everything. And then there are the noises. In this specific case, the noise could be, I don't know, our computer that bleep blimp or a, 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 a bus that passed by while when you're listening to us. Now, apply all of this to the world of branding, for instance. Now, the brand Pepsi is the sender. The message is, I don't know, leave for now or thirsty for more. One of the claims that the marketing team usually come up with. The audience is, exactly. Who is the audience? That's the first step. Because you, you manage Pepsi, you're like, well, the audience is billions of people We sell Pepsi every day to around the world. But that's too generic when you build a brand. So the ability to polarize your audience to understand who to talk with, who to inspire eventually, assuming that if you inspire a specific persona, you're going to bring all the others with you, you know, through that. But who are those people? Who do you want to talk with? How do you try to talk to somebody and inspire them and everybody else versus talking to everybody and not inspire anybody? That is the typical problem of many big corporations and big brands. And then there is the media and the code. The really change the game. I talk about this also in the book, change the game for us as designers. The media is everything in in this world we live in. I mean, the, the first media you can think of, obviously is television, then, you know, printed media, then later on the digital media. But the reality is that today, If we create something interesting in a piece of packaging, you go to Walmart, you buy an interesting can that you didn't expect, you know, limited edition inspired by the movie Back to the Future. Wow, you know, I was not planning to buy Pepsi today, but I see this, I love it. By the way, let me take a picture and share it. The moment you do that, that packaging is not packaging anymore. It becomes content and media therefore is it become a piece of communication the same if you go to a fashion show or a stadium and you live an experience you take a picture and all of a sudden that thing is not just an event or it's not just packaging is a media for a message the code is what you say so It obviously is about choosing words in a careful way so that you can communicate to those people in a powerful way. But more and more, and this is what changed the game for us designers, the code is visual. Because while in the past, the code was what you were doing in television, essentially. And so this was dominated by marketing. Today, if you communicate in social media, in Instagram, in TikTok, or if you do things in store, in retail, in in, uh, the food service channel, in our case, at the fashion show, at the stadium. So, all of this is visual code. You take pictures, you share with the world, and it's so powerful. And then the context again is the cultural context and the noise is maybe I do something as Pepsi and then Coke does something opposite to what I'm doing and change completely the meaning of, you know, what I was trying to say. So the noise is the competitor. Now, an example I made in the book is think about the presidents of the United States. Think about Obama. I remember when Obama won the elections the first time. I was still living in Italy, but I had a team in the United States, a team of multiple young um, adults. And I remember calling them the morning after the election, and they were all that tired. I was like, why are you tired? Well, we've been celebrating all night. Or, or, wow, you have been celebrating all night, so you're all supporter of Obama. What, what is the key part of the program of, of Obama that, that you really love? And they tell you, most of the people were confused they had no idea what to answer so the message of obama was not what made him win probably for many many people is the code and the media the code is a black guy young cool playing basketball dressing in an informal way not the typical mold of a president you would expect the media was the fact that back then he was using social media for the first time to communicate. As presidents before used television for the first time, radio for the first time. Every time there is a person that uses new media that is relevant, especially to new generations, for the first time, all of a sudden you change the meaning of the message. You, you know, and, and so he won because whatever he was saying, what was relevant, it was how he was saying the media and the code. The same happened for Trump. You know, the way he used Twitter and other social media in a totally unconventional way for presidents, uh, the, the words he were using, the way he was using those words, the face, the body language, the expressions, he resonated to the people he wanted to talk with through code and media, not just the message. So this is very interesting to understand that power, because if we do as creative, as designers, as people that are selling their services to companies, either because you work in a company or you work for a company through your agency, you learn what to sell to them. You tell them that you building the brand, building the campaign should stop focusing just on the message. It should understand the power of the code. And therefore, me as a designer, I can help you so much because I master the visual language of these brands. This is what I they, what they do. And even though 20 years ago, eventually this was less relevant because you had television. Today, where you need to build pe- to reach people wherever they are 24-7 through experiences and transform them in the ambassadors of your brands and people that take pictures and videos and share them with the world in an authentic way, well, the code of everything you do, of every touch point of the brand, assume a value that never had before. And again, using their language, you should tell a marketer or a business leader, your packaging, your fleet, if you have a brand that has a fleet, Don't look at that as an investment in assets. Look at that as content. But that's content exclusively, if you do something so unique, so meaningful, so relevant to the people you're communicating to, that you push them to take the phone, take a picture and share it with the rest of the world. In the book, I talk about the DOS, Discovering, Owning, Sharing. You know, It's the moment where you're walking in the street and the truck of Cheetos pass by with Chester Cheetah attached to the side of the truck that is almost flying away. And you're like, wow, I didn't expect that. Usually you have the logo of the, of the, of the brand there. That's fun. I take a picture and I share it with the rest of the world. And you go to a, a store to buy a series of things and you get excited by something you didn't expect. That's the discovering phase. When you discover something you don't expect, You own it. You think, oh, I know this, and other people don't. When you've had that feeling of excitement, you take your phone and you share it with the rest of the world, in social media or maybe in a call or in a conversation with your friends later on.
1: Mm. There's so much wisdom in there. I want to underscore something you said around this visual nature that the world is now, and i my I'm a lifelong photographer, um, and that was my original sort of foundation. And I have come to understand uh, also very, very early uh, proponent of mobile photography long before it was um, seen as relevant. Uh, and I believe that photography is a universal language. You know, there are seven thousand one hundred and six languages on the planet. You talked about, You know the relationship between speaking japanese or english or italian or whatever and yet visual proficiency for the people who are listening the ability if you've watched a 14 year old communicate with their friends the words are few the pictures are many right this idea if if i had to learn even 20 languages and and need to say i love you i'm sorry um will you help me um You know that's a lifelong endeavor to try and learn all the words in in ten different languages. But if I can show you a picture of a new mother with an infant baby, everybody understands that immediately and intuitively for a human. So for the photographers out there, and for people who are wondering if it's if you know photography or if the ability to communicate creatively is at the core of the future of the human experience, obviously you have to understand that this is true. Um, And to that end. Well, actually, if I can, you know, a small
0: thought when you were talking. So photography has been always powerful, but in the past, You were, as a company, you were building brands through, again, television, and then you were going to the store, and there was the moment of reinforcement, reassurance, recalling of what you saw in television. You're like, oh, I know that brand. I'm going to buy it. I love that brand. Today, depending on the region of the world we're in, we spend between five to eight hours a day in front of our phones, looking at pictures of any kind. So while in the past, you look at photography of products rarely during the day, today you spend five to eight hours a day looking at photography of any kind. And what is the problem slash opportunity for these companies? They, because we people are bombarded by new photo, new pictures, new images all the time, there are two things that need to happen. One, the picture, the photography needs to be very impactful. It needs to talk to people quickly in an instant. And that's why, by the way, photography is more important than writing. This is why from, uh, Instagram, all the way to TikTok that is photography motion is very short, short, short uh, videos. Uh, but anything is visual is winning because you don't have time to spend to read. And so uh, the visual language is so important and you need to really be strategic in the way you use images, the code we're talking about, photography for sure, to compete, not anymore just in my case, for instance, with another cola brand, but we're competing for attention with the uh, latest song of actually the entire album at this point of Taylor Swift or the next phone of, of Apple or Samsung or the next event. That's what you're competing with. And that's what we need to understand is not anymore about the functional attributes of your product, Mm -mm. but is how relevant is your product in the life of people and therefore also your brand. And that's why you need to understand also what your brand stands for, because you're competing for attention on these devices mostly.
1: Mm. So wise. This brings me to the last point that I would like, this is the perfect entree into the last point that I would like to share with you and get your take on. What I'd like to share is a word out of your own book. And again, I want to uh, reinforce the title of your book, the human side of innovation. The subhead is the power of people in love with people, which is, it's a beautiful title. And just the concept, the wrapper that you've created for the book is you know go back to the unicorn and and the reason you're here is because your love for communicating and and communicating with 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 other people. So the the way I want to wrap this conversation is with some words from your book. And this idea is the age of excellence. You just talked about, you know, earlier we talked about how to stand out and to what degree and here you're talking about attention and how we sort of compete to get our ideas out in the world, not just with other competitors in our field, but with just in the general sphere of intention. And this, I wanna read here. We're entering a new modern Renaissance fueled by the reborn humanistic necessity of putting people at the center of everything. Here's the line. Technology is an enabling asset. The brand and distribution are the amplifiers but the excellence of the product put at the service of human beings is the is the fundamental variable success for success it will no longer be possible to win simply with brute power of impenetrable technological patents this idea of making excellent things is such a cornerstone for the future i'm hoping you can talk about it
0: yeah Look we for many many years to produce products that eventually were average were okay in a competitive landscape where eventually the entire industry was delivering the kind of average solutions was fine because the those industries were industries that were dominated by few players there were huge barriers to entry driven by scale eventually The products at the beginning were also, you know, extraordinary, but then over time, society changed, needs changed. And and, and eventually, once again, those products lost that extraordinarity that they had at the beginning. And an entire industry adapted uh, to something that was not that extraordinary for a reason, because... Every business of the world, the vast majority of the businesses of the world are driven by the idea of extracting as much profit out of products and brands to grow those businesses. They are not driven by the idea of creating something extraordinary for people. They are driven by the idea of creating something good enough to, for that thing to be as profitable as possible and grow the business as much as possible. This thing is, this idea needs to change right now completely because we live in a world where anybody can come up with an idea, get easy access to funding through the proliferation of investment funds and and incubators or digital platforms like kickstarter.com, funding your idea, looking for new ideas to be funded. Uh, You go, uh, the cost of manufacturing is going down driven by globalization and new technologies, and you go straight to, Uh, your end users uh, through the e commerce platform to sell them products and to the social media platform to promote your products. So all these, in all these areas, these companies were building their barriers to entry made of scale of production, distribution, and communication. And, and it was easy, essentially, you know, you were living this dynamic kind of situation today. Instead, once again, you have new competitors entering your business, looking at essentially what are the potential frustrations, unmet needs, uh, desires and dreams that people out there may have for your product, your brands and your category. And if there is one area that you're not, uh, where you're not extraordinary, that's exactly where they will enter. As an example, you may have a great product and a good brand, but this, the service is not great. Well, they will create a great product, a good brand, with great service. And what in the past they couldn't access... Walmart, Carrefour, Home Depot, whatever is the uh, channel that your brand and product use, today they can use e-commerce. If in the past they couldn't compete with the millions of dollars that you spend spending in communication, today they can because they can use social media. And so you are left with the only option of creating something that is great in every dimension. You may have, once again, a great product, great service this time and a great brand, but your brand is not purposeful enough or your product is not sustainable enough or is not healthy enough. They will enter exactly there. This is what happened with Uber disrupting the transportation industry, with Airbnb disrupting the hospitality industry. And it's going to happen to your industry as well, if it's not happening yet, unless you are the one disrupting yourself and disrupting your industry. So excellence across every dimensions of the product is fundamental and is driven not by processes and tools, is driven by culture, is driven by this idea of human centricity, is driven by this obsession of all your people across every function of the organization, thinking. I want to create something great for people in the society. I want to add value to people in the society through what I do. I see my company as a platform to create something valuable for people out there. I see my company as a access to an industry that could be better. I'm gonna help, I'm gonna be one of the many people that will help change in an industry, changing society, changing the world for the better. And it seems ambitious and arrogant maybe for somebody, but the reality is that if everybody thinks in the way, millions of people, billions of people thinking the way, then we can easily change the world. But if we don't start in our scale with the little that we control to think that we can change the world, then nothing is ever going to happen.
1: Mara, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for sharing the secret to creating life-changing innovations, uh, one little pixel, one little atom at a time, putting that human need at the center of everything. Thank you for uh, being a guest on the show. Congratulations on the new book, on uh, all the recent um, Attention and Design Awards. It's been a treat to get to speak with you. And is there anywhere else you would steer us besides the book? Anything else you want us to direct our attention to?
0: Look, I mean, if you're asking about connecting with me, Instagram and LinkedIn are plaf- where platforms where I post every day. And for me, interacting with people that give me feedback and help me understanding if I'm doing something good, but also if I'm doing something wrong, it's so invaluable. So that's a that's a great platform to connect with me.
1: Awesome. Mauro, thank you so much again. And for everyone out there in the world, signing off for yours truly and for Mauro. Until next time, we bid you or adieu. Or how would they say it in Italian? Ciao, ragazzi. Ciao,
0: ragazzi. Alla prossima. Ci vediamo. Spingete l'idea dell'amore.
1: Spread love. I just said in Italian. <laughs> Thanks again. Until next time, everybody, signing off. Thank you very much. All right, that's all for today's show. But hey, before you go, I want to say thank you for listening and also for engaging with the platform. Wherever you consume the show, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere, thank you so much. Reviews help a ton if you're willing to. And I want to let you know in an effort to continue the topics we explore here on the show, or if you have questions, you can always direct your comments to me on all my social feeds. I'm at Chase Jarvis everywhere, but also I will see your message quicker. If you shoot me a text, that's right. I can text directly with you. The best way is to hit me up at 206-309-5177. I get a lot of text, so I can't always get back to you right in the moment. But trust me, those are my thumbs on the other end of the keyboard. So I want to say thanks so much. And I look forward to engaging with you soon.